This is a Quack Cast, the Revenant edition. This is number 222, and it's called Part of a Complete Breakfast. The references and clever links are over at Science Based Medicine for the March 21st, 2023 blog entry of the same name. For much of my career in infectious diseases, I was head of infection control for two hospital systems and one long term care facility a total of six institutions with differing levels of care and acuity. So I tend to see everything through the lens of infection and infection control. Makes me fun at parties. The goal of infection control is to, well, control infection. Kind of a duh there. But it can be divided into preventing hospital-acquired infections, surgical wound infections, ventilator-acquired pneumonias, central line infections, etc., and preventing the spread of contagion to staff and patients, influenza, COVID-45, chickenpox, etc. When I started in the biz, I thought the occasional hospital-acquired infection was the price paid for high-tech invasive medicine. You couldn't do what we did to people and not get the occasional infection. Wrong. My first hint was hand hygiene. It had been known for 200 years that the hands are an excellent source to spread infections around the hospital, and that hand-washing stops the spread of germs. Despite that ancient knowledge, hand-washing compliance with adherence, or is it adherence with compliance, was abysmal. I had one surgeon who refused to wash his hands or wear gloves for dressing changes, and a medical subspecialist who said it was too much bother as the sink was on the other side of the room. And anesthesiologist? Jesus. Getting them to wash hands, much less do full barriers for central line infections or alcohol wiping a medicine bottle was impossible, much less getting them to wash their hands. One of the good things about hospitals assuming physician practices is that it standardizes care and good behavior or you are gone. This was decades ago and all the above doctors are long since departed. But it taught me early that a remarkable number of doctors are recalcitrant morons who willingly ignore best practice and the medical literature. As you read this, remember that sometimes highly educated and trained doctors are unable to do the right thing. Then along came alcohol foam. At first, I thought it was like easy cheese, a convenient way to deliver alcohol, and it was to be used orally. Imagine my disappointment when I quickly discovered it was better used on the hands. But with only 20% adherence with compliance, hospital infection rates fell by half. That was amazing. And as compliance with adherence to using alcohol foam increased over time to 100%, the infection control rates fell in lockstep. The dose-response curve was interesting and unexpected, at least by me. And we really did get to an 100% adherence with our compliance. The rule was you had to foam when entering and exiting a room, period. If it were noticed in real time, you would be nicely asked to foam. And the only response that was allowed to be given was thank you. No whining, complaining, bitching, or yelling aloud. I literally went to every nurse and doctor in the system to tell them the above expectations and that if anybody complained about being asked to foam, they would be referred to me. Guess what? Never got a referral. Hand hygiene, combined with various targeted interventions for ventilator-associated pneumonia, 
line-related infections, catheter-related urinary tract infections, etc., drove our hospital infection rates down to almost zero. In the early days of my practice, I made a living taking care of hospital-acquired infections. At the end, almost nothing. It was nice to put myself out of work. Around a decade ago, I realized that infections were not the price of doing business and that infection rates should be close to zero. Close, but not quite. The problem was threefold. To keep infections at zero, you have to do multiple interventions all the time, no fails ever, also known as perfection. Not humanly possible. Another is that there would occasionally be some perfect storm of rare events that would combine to circumvent all our hard work. Microorganisms are wily creatures and will take advantage of even the slightest opportunity to start an infection. And we do not always have control over patients' behaviors after discharge. And to paraphrase Art Linkletter, anybody know what I'm referring to here? Patients do the darndest things and get infected. The medical literature is filled with case reports and outbreaks of infection caused by the damnedest events and one of the interesting aspects of taking care of infectious diseases. Finding these weird risks was always entertaining. Preventing infections isn't easy or simple. Multiple interventions always done perfectly. But I am proud to say that my hospitals were as close to perfection as is humanly possible. And it also depends on whether the organism is part of the human condition or as a pathogen. For example, besides hand hygiene, I am skeptical that outside of an outbreak, much can be done to prevent the spread of MRSA or extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing E. coli or other organisms that can be part of our normal microbiome. It does much to prevent spread. But for organisms that are only pathogenic, infection control is much more important. Which brings us to COVID-45, part of your complete infection control program and prevention in the real world. All the cleaning and disinfection we do has been mostly medical theater. COVID-45 is predominantly spread by aerosols slash droplets. I do not doubt some poor slob has stuck his finger in some COVID-laden snot and placed that finger in his eye. Shit happens. You want to be grossed out and entertained? Just watch people's hands in a public space. Say, in an operating room break room, fingers wander. But the most successful interventions to prevent COVID spread are directed at the primary mode of transmission, the air. So do masks work? And by work, I mean prevent infection? They sure as hell do in the hospital. Well, mostly. I was initially surprised when I saw there were studies evaluating the efficacy of masks in the operating room did not prevent infections. Quote, from the limited results, it is unclear whether wearing of surgical face masks by members of the surgical team has any impact on surgical wound infection rates for patients undergoing clean surgery. But then I considered. The organisms that usually cause surgical wound infections, streptococci and staphylococci, are not usually found in the upper respiratory tract. They can be, but not usually. It is rare for oral streptococci to lead to infections from procedures. But occasionally, streptococci can jump from healthcare workers to patients, which is why masks are a good idea. Because, as noted above, shit can happen. So I would prefer to have anyone doing a procedure wear a mask. Hopefully a new mask with each procedure. 
As a fellow, I had a panic call from the operating room. The surgeon had had her mask around her neck during lunch, and in the middle of an open-heart valve replacement, a broccoli flowerette fell from the mask and into the mediastinum. Largest cardiac vegetation of my career. The patient did fine. There should be nothing on a piece of cooked broccoli that can cause an infection. But hospitals are controlled aseptic environments where you have people like me pointing out your infection control failings in real time. The infected patient is in a fixed position, in bed most of the time, in a room with little for the pathogen to prosper and a very rapid air turnover. A hospital room has 6 to 12 air exchanges an hour, depending on the room. Air is pumped out of the room and into the outdoors and with it pathogens. The air is never reused. It makes the heating bill a bitch. With knowledge of the predominant method of transmission, contact, fecal-oral, ick, droplet, aerosol, etc., it is easy enough to throw together the necessary personal protective equipment to protect yourself from whatever pathogen the patient has. Each intervention does not lead to a binary result, it just decreases the odds of infection. For what it is worth, little, 36 years of taking care of acute infections and I have never caught an infection from a patient. I was up to my eyebrows in COVID-45 and I avoided that pathogen so far. I did convert my PPD, a test of exposure to tuberculosis, as a fellow, but I suspect it was from a non-occupational tuberculosis exposure, some unknown tubercular. There is data to suggest that many healthcare workers' PPD conversions are not related to work. As one example, quote, in the setting of effective tuberculous infection control program, TST conversion rates were low, and the rate of conversion among healthcare workers was associated most strongly with non-occupational factors. Los Angeles and its environs, as well as the county hospitals I frequented, may not be as TB-free as one would like. I can remember two respiratory outbreaks in my long and storied career. One was influenza, likely from a nurse who became symptomatic in the middle of their shift and spread flu to a few patients. And there was a chickenpox outbreak in one of our ICUs, and the source was never identified. But otherwise, no infections or outbreaks that I can recall. I do not doubt there was the occasional transmission of flu or adenovirus or COVID or RSV from patient to staff, but it would be hard to know if these were acquired as part of work or part of life. To my mind, and lots of opinion to follow, trying to apply the concepts of hospital infection control to COVID was bound to be suboptimal and ludicrous in the community. I still think the six-foot rule was stupid. It is fine for a hospital room, but in the real world, people are constantly moving in and out of each other's haze, and air currents will take droplets and aerosols far from their origin. Masks? When I wrote the first draft, I was in a Fiji airport awaiting a flight home from New Zealand, and few who were wearing masks were wearing them poorly, or they were wearing the wrong ones. It is, I think, clear that masks, as well as social distancing, like avoiding people inside as much as possible, stops respiratory infection transmission. Most respiratory viruses disappear during COVID. China, following the lead of Florida, has seen the results of changing from maximal to minimal COVID prevention. But the recent COVID meta-analysis is, to my mind, 
worthless. Regular listeners know I am not a big fan of meta-analyses as a means of coming to the truth of a matter. To my mind, the theory behind a meta-analysis is you collect multiple piles of cow manure into a single large pile and you get spun gold. Eh, not so much. A meta-analysis does offer a nice overview of a topic, but I have never found an expert in a field who thought a meta-analysis in their field of expertise was the last word on a topic. The more expertise in a field, the more you read the primary literature and try to apply it to patients, and the less enthusiastic you are about meta-analyses. I like to use them like the proverbial drunk in a lamppost, i.e. for support, not illumination. Masks to prevent respiratory infections in the community? Well, there are a lot of questions around mask use as there are vaccinations. Like all of medicine, it's complex. Quote, if you wear a mask while there's a pandemic, are you less likely to get sick? If you wear a mask while you have a respiratory illness, are you less likely to infect other people? If you make people less likely to get sick during a pandemic, does that have lasting benefits to them, or does it just delay an infection without significantly changing their long-term health outcomes? Does it reduce transmission enough to change overall dynamics of the pandemic? If you tell people to wear masks, will they actually wear masks correctly and reliably? Nope. What are the costs to the median person and to a person who is unusually affected by wearing masks of wearing masks? My take, no surprise, is the better the mask and the more you wear it, the less the odds of getting a respiratory illness, including COVID-45. Other protective interventions, the odds go down further. There are other opinions. Quote, there is no evidence that they, masks, make any difference. Full stop. Tucker Carlson. Whoops, wrong attribution. But same credibility for me. It was Tom Jefferson who said in the same interview, quote, the idea that the COVID virus is transmitted via aerosols has been repeated over and over as if it's the truth, but the evidence is as thin as air. Which begs the question, why does the Cochrane hire these authors? If you judge a person by their company they keep, it cannot be good for their reputation. Of course, it could be they like opinions of a maverick. I saw a maverick recently. Awful movie. Predictable, cliche-ridden, full of unbelievable plot holes, brain dead. It looked good until you actually thought about it. I thought Plan 9 from Outer Space was better in comparison. But is that what the meta-analysis showed? I plowed through the whole thing. Nope. As noted, it was extremely difficult to get highly educated and trained medical professionals to use protection correctly. Insert pregnancy joke of your own choosing here. The key paragraphs in this article, quote, Adherence with interventions, especially educational programs, was a problem for many studies despite the importance of such low-cost interventions. Adherence with mask wearing varied. It was generally around 60 to 80 percent, but was reported to be as low as 40 percent. And people lie about mask wearing. Overall, the logistics of carrying out trials that involve sustained behavior change are demanding, particularly in challenging settings such as immigrant neighborhoods or students' hall of residence. And, quote, 
The identified trials provided sparse and unsystematic data on adverse effects of the intervention, and few of the RCTs measured or reported adherence with the intervention, which is especially important for the use of surgical masks or N95 respirators. No study investigated how the level of adherence may have influenced the effect size. And, quote, the observed lack of mask wearing in interrupting the spread of influenza-like illness or influenza COVID-19 in our review has many potential reasons, including poor study design, insufficiently powered studies arising from low viral circulation in some studies, lower adherence with mask wearing, especially among children, quality of the mask use, self-contamination of mask by hands, lack of protection from eye exposure from respiratory droplets, saturation of masks with saliva from extended use, and possible risk compensation behavior leading to an exaggerated sense of security. So basically, given the adherence of mask use and other issues, this meta-analysis is no different than comparing homeopathy to water. You could reasonably conclude that mask mandates have issues, or that infection control techniques used outside the hospital have adherence issues, rendering judgment on their efficacy problematic, that would be a reasonable response. A messy literature should lead to a messy conclusion. To conclude that masks don't work? I don't know. I really wonder, how does it feel to have the blood of innocence on your hands? But then, not even the Cochrane agrees with the Cochrane. Quote, One of the lead articles of the review even more seriously misinterpreted its findings on masks by saying in an interview that it proved, quote, there was no evidence that they make a difference, end quote. In fact, Soares Weezer said, this statement is not an accurate representation of what the review found. I remember as an intern discussing whether a study that looked at upper GI endoscopy was helpful for upper gastrointestinal bleeds. The study said no, but my attending pointed out that there was no intervention to stop the bleeding. They just looked, said, yep, there's bleeding, and removed the scope. There has to be an intervention before you declare that it has use or not. And chin masks don't cut it. If you have highly infectious diseases, as most respiratory viri are, and you are not OCD punctilious with your infection control, no prevention is going to work. It was really difficult to get proper prevention methods to be used by healthcare workers. In the real world, forget about it. I was going to use seatbelts as my example, figuring that everybody uses seatbelts, 100% adherence, and how combined with multiple other engineered safety features, cars have become remarkably safe compared to the 1950s. A nice metaphor for infection prevention. I assumed there would be a nice before and after data as everybody uses seatbelts, if only to avoid that annoying chime. Nope. People don't wear their damn seatbelts. 15%. And the use of seatbelt reminder systems only increases seatbelt use by a few percentage points. Some people must love that annoying ding-dong. The Cochrane Reviews have never done a meta-analysis on seatbelt use. I assume if they did, they would apply the same methodology 
and ignore whether or not seatbelts were actually used correctly. Just the seatbelts were in the car. And then I would assume the same author would conclude there's just no evidence that they, seatbelts, make any difference. Full stop. It's all about odds. Depending on the infection, various interventions, if done correctly, will decrease the odds of spreading and acquiring infections. The more interventions you apply, the more adherent with compliance you are, the better the results. It is a royal pain in the neck to do correctly and consistently. In the real world, compared to hospitals, interventions will likely be less than impressive because adherence with compliance will stink on ice. Infection control procedures will be done haphazardly, at best. Still, I wore an N95 on the plane and in the waiting area. I avoid people if I can. The best thing about COVID was I had a great excuse to avoid people, which I prefer to do anyway. My brother was always surprised I was a doctor because he says, you're not much of a people person. And I don't inhale. I learned that from Clinton. COVID-45 was and is horrific. It has killed 7 million people or more and is still killing around 1,000 people a day or more. Maybe, maybe not a 0.1% death rate, but that's nothing. Influenza killed maybe 5% of the world in 1918-1919, and that was in three months. In a slow-moving, relatively empty world, flu will return, and avian influenza is waiting its turn to become infectious as well as fatal in humans. When, not if, we get a respiratory infection that is both highly contagious and has, say, a 5, 20, 50% mortality rate, we will need every intervention to slow the infection down, please. And people will remember nonsense like the erroneous take on the Cochrane Review for COVID-45 and respiratory infections, and those interventions will not be used. And people will die unnecessarily. Full stop.